Today's podcast is generously sponsored by Yoni and Lisa Whitner in honor of the memory of Rabbi Ari Fold, the Lion of Zion. There's a Hasidic rabbi in LA. His name is Rabbi Halberstam. I used to have a shul on, uh, I don't know what street it was, 3rd Street. It's called the Atzechayim Shul. His grandfather was a famous Hasidic rabbi called the Atzechayim. Mm-hmm. And he just put out a couple years ago his gra- uh, a safer on the laws of mikvah. Very di- very difficult topic, the laws of mikvos. And he put out a safer from his grandfather commenting on it. And I was looking at the introduction. Right, Some great stuff is always in the introduction of these farm. And in the introduction he had a great comment. Gemara Bracha says that once the base of Migdash was destroyed... All God has in this world is the four Amos of Halacha Bilvad. The four Amos of Halacha alone. So what a strange word, Bilvad, alone. Just say all God has left. Once the base of Migdash was destroyed, all God has left is the four Amos Halacha. The little Halacha that you learned. What does it mean, Bilvad? <coughs> so says Rav Halberstam in the introduction, Bilvad means that we've got to a point where our Halacha has nowhere to go. It's got nowhere to move. It stays. Some guy learning in the back of a base Medrash somewhere in Measharm. That halacha that he learns, it's very hard for it to move anywhere. It's static. And it's interesting, he said that in a time, not realizing that soon would be a day like the internet, Facebook, whatever else it is, tape recorders, that we now have a way of making sure it's no longer bilvad. That that halacha now has a way to move, to carry, to get to other places, to reach other people. And because of that, it works the other way as well. We're now able to get the Torah that we might not normally have seen. So I want to share with you tonight some approaches to tshuva that I think you've never seen before. And we've found it just because things are now finally able to move around. And I think there are powerful new distinctions in how to look at tshuva in a way that relates to us uh, in 2013. I start with the comment of the Yismach Moshe. The Yismach Moshe says, the Pasuk in Dvarim tells us that Mereshit Hashana al-Acharit Shana. That the eyes of God are on Israel from the beginning of the year until the end of year. Because it says, Mereshit ha-shana ad acharit shana, without the hay. So he says, why did it start with the hay, ha-shana, and end without the hay, shana? And he says, because every year we start again. We say, the year. This is going to be the year. This is the time in my life I'm going to make serious change. This is the time right now I'm committed. It always starts whenever we wake up finally and we hit rock bottom. We wake up and we say, now this is going to be the time. And then all of a sudden we find ourselves down the road at some other place and it ends up just being another year. There's no more the in front of it anymore. It ends up just being another one of those years. Fall off the wagon, you go back to the way you were. It goes back to just Shana. It always starts, Hashana. This is going to be the year and then it ends up being just chalking up another year. So God willing tonight, we could try to curb that. We had a bold title. I don't know if I believe the title so much. Change forever. I, I just got me on the spot. I was just looking for a big title, but I, it's a bit much. But at least we could just sort of begin to break that habit of every year, whenever that point in the year is for you, of trying to say to yourself, "I'm going to do something different this year," and then get sidetracked from that. And let's let's curb that tonight if we can. The Gemara in Rosh Hashanah, 16b. I want to start with this one big question, and from there we'll take it. The Gemara in Rosh Hashanah 16b. You may be familiar with this. This uh, metaphysical idea with the underline in the middle. Shlosha Svarim Niftachin Barosh Hashanah. Three books are open on Rosh Hashanah. One that belongs to the totally wicked. One that belongs to the total tzaddikim. And one of the Benonim. Right? The also ran. Right? First place, second place. Also ran. Chaim, Chaim Yaakov. The also ran. It's all of us. It's everybody in between. None of us are totally wicked. I hope not. None of us, that, that's a whole other madriga. That's, 
That's beyond what we can comprehend, or the total wicked. And none of us are the total tzaddikim. Uh, you know, at least I don't think any of us, no one I know, is at the level of total tzaddikim. Where do we end up? We all end up in the middle category, the benonim. The Balatanya, the first Lubavitcher Rebbe, talks about the benoni as being the highest level we could aspire to. That's different a little bit for right now than this benoni we're talking about. This benoni is just the average, right? Where we are, just where we are, somewhere in between, good days and bad days. That's the benoni. So the tzaddikim are signed right away for the Book of Life, Rosh Hashanah. The Rashaim Gemur. The key word here is Gemurim, by the way. This way you don't lump yourself in that category. Rashaim Gemurim, total. That's everything you do is bad. Those are also signed for death already at Rosh Hashanah. That they're just done. They're done with. The Benonim, all of us, we're suspended until Yom Kippur. We're suspended until Yom Kippur. So that image that we all work on, you know, when we're kids, that thing with the scales and all that, that's this Gemara right here. Now, how in the middle are we? Like, how should we imagine ourselves? Turn to the top of the next page. Gemara and Kedushin. Gemara and Kedushin says... Tanarabanan, Leolam Yira Adam Atzmo. A person should view themselves, Kiilu Chatsia Chayev, Vachatsia Zakai, as though they're half, 50% in trouble, and 50% good. You do one mitzvah, Ashrav Shechriya Atzmo Lakavskos. You tip the whole thing over. So I just told you before from the Gemara Shana, we're all in the category of Benonim. How should we view ourselves? How close in the middle are we? The Gemara Kedushin says everyone should see themselves. If you made it past Rosh Hashanah, everybody should see themselves as 50-50. We need one mitzvah to throw the whole thing off and we're good. One mitzvah. Now here comes the question. Rambam, when quoting these Gemaras, basically quoting these Gemaras. Look at the bottom. The Rambam says, same thing. Just like just like they count the merits and sins of a person when you die, so too we weigh it each year. God weighs it. On the Yantif of Rosh Hashanah. Someone who's a tzaddik, you're signed for life. You're Russia, signed for death. Benoni, all of us, you hang until Yom Kippur. If you do tshuva, you get signed for life. If not, you get death. Here's the question. The Gemara seem to indicate that we're all at 50-50, or at least we should see ourselves at 50-50. And what do we need? We need one good thing, that one little thing in your life that begins to change. One little mitzvah is all you need, and you're good. Rambam came along and stuck words in the mouth of the Gemara. Rambam came along and didn't say you need one thing. Rambam said you need tshuva. You have tshuva, you're good. No tshuva, you're not good. So the question is, why did Rambam say that that one mitzvah, that one thing, that one mitzvah, why did the Rambam say that one mitzvah is tshuva? That's the only question I want to deal with tonight. Right? Again, we're 50-50. We need one mitzvah to tip the scales. I'm getting excited because that's easy. I can do anything. I can do any little mitzvah. I can host a shear tonight. No, that's no small deal. It's a big one. I can host a shear. I can give a couple pennies to tzedakah on the way out. Whatever it is. I could say to somebody in your ride home. I could do a thousand things. I'm good. I got tons of ways of being good. Instead, the Rambam came along and narrowed it down to one thing, to tshuva. Why? Why do you do that? That's the only question I want to deal with. I'll give you four different answers. Answer number one. One of the world's highest recorded geniuses and probably the biggest genius in America. And how do you quantify that? Let's just at least go IQ. Right? Is a guy named Chris Langham. Chris Langham <coughs> is a guy who's is called the smartest man in America. And if you think he's just the brain, the guy also won numerous weightlifting championships. Seems like he's got it all. He's got brains, he's got brawn, 
He's uh, attempted startup companies and entrepreneurship with uh, different things with cognitive behavior therapy and using the mind for development and evolution, all this stuff. Who here has heard of Chris Lehman? Not a single person. Not a single person. Who's here heard of Bill Gates? Everybody's heard of Bill Gates. Why does the world know about Bill Gates, but the world does not know about Chris Langham? The man is the smartest man in the world, the, or at least in America. The guy has won numerous weightlifting championships. He's creative. He's thoughtful. How come no one knows who he is, but everybody knows who Bill Gates is? He's a Democrat. What? He's a Democrat. They both might be Democrats. So... He could be the smartest What? He could be the smartest one. If they're not known to me. <coughs> Democrats. Oh, 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 sorry. I always throw the whole thing up. Every time, Goldberg... Svi's not here to you. So the uh, so Malcolm Gladwell. I don't know if you read his book Outliers. <coughs> Gladwell has an argument in Outliers. Says the following. He says the people who have made it, sure they had tons of talent, but they've had super opportunities in their life that nobody else uh, else has had. You know he loves the example of the Beatles. The Beatles became the Beatles. Yeah, they were talented. They knew rhythm. They had a great sense of music. But the Beatles were ta- made it because they had over 10,000 hours to practice in different pubs. Most bands at that time never had the opportunity or the money or the, or the spots or the, or the offers to be able to practice for 10,000 hours together. They were able to practice. So opportunity met the moment. They used their talent and that made them an outlier. Outlier because their certain opportunities and talents came together and bam, they became successful. Bill Gates. Bill Gates had the opportunity in being in one of the few high schools in the entire country that had a computer when he was in high school. One of maybe three high schools in the entire country. So he needed the opportunity of being there. Number two, the university had to have the opportunity of offering him a scholarship to enter into a special computer idea of beginning basic computer programming. Um, he went to a, right near his house was a summer camp that offered an idea of teaching this concept of computers. If Bill Gates lived in any other city in the world, he never would have had those opportunities, and therefore we would not know who Bill Gates is today. He had certain opportunities that created that golden moment for him to step right in. If he was born six years later, he would have already missed the boat of that opportunity. If he was born five or six years earlier, I remember, remember that game was the Astros versus the Dodgers. I don't know what year it was. But it never ended. And suddenly, it was like 22nd inning, and suddenly they stuck Fernando Valenzuela at first base. Very talented Fernando. By the way, what record does Fernando hold that still stands today? You know, He's the first guy to strike out six future Hall of Famers in a row. He did it at an All-Star game. Struck out six. Forget it, not for now. So they stuck Fernando Valenzuela at first base. They put him at first base, and he jumped, and that was the end of the game. Why? Because the top of his glove hit the ball. What was the chap? I remember the announcer, God it was saying at the time, it wasn't Vince Scully, was saying that if he was shorter, right? If he was shorter, he would have missed it and the guy in the outfield would have got it and then threw it at home and they would have been held at third. If he was a taller or the regular size of a first baseman who's usually and generally taller, he would have caught it. It just happened to be he was who he was, his height, and therefore top of the glove, game was over. Certain opportunities, certain moments, people put in certain experience at a certain time create the possibility for success or failure. No one knows Chris Langham. Chris Langham did not have the same social opportunities as many of us or he himself had. For example, Chris Langham himself, uh, his mother was kicked out of the family. Father left him at an early age. Left him at an early age. His stepfather was abusive. Already grew up in an environment that inhibited any strong social development and went on a different course. 
I'm just saying certain opportunities are given to certain people at certain times. What does it have to do with us? That's Malcolm Gladwell's whole book, The Outliers. That idea has always been there for us. It's not in the packet. But Rav Itzala Blazer, Rav Itzala Blazer was the star student of Rav Yisrael Salanter, right? The father of the Musser movement. Rav Itzala Blazer, right? He was the rabbi in St. Petersburg, Russia. Um, he, for a while, was the rabbi of the canonist shul. You know, the canonists are canonists were Russian kids, Jewish kids who were taken at a young age, <coughs> forced to serve in the army, and weren't let out till they were 45. They had no life. By the time they got out, they didn't know anybody anymore. They didn't have any much religion left. So they made their own shul. It was a canonist shul. It was a very sad place. You can imagine. They had nothing anymore. Um, so he was he tried to work with them a little bit, but he was a genius. He was a student of Rabbi Yisrael Salanter. Ravitzla Blazer says like this. This is his idea. He asks the question we asked: Why did the Rambam turn it to tshuva? It sounds like if you're fifty-fifty, any mitzvah should work. Why? Says Ravitzla Blazer because right now, God is putting in front of you a golden ticket, the opportunity of a lifetime. The opportunity is sitting right in front of you. The potential for what tshuva can do for your life during this week is something that nothing else can match it. And the statement that you're making by saying, I don't want anything with it, is an unbelievable statement. You are given that outlier moment, says Ravitzel Blazer. God is giving you that time right now. I'm telling you, you're struggling the whole year over something, trying to figure out why I can't get better, why I can't pick up my life. Now's your time. I'm putting you right at the edge. This is the moment. This is your 10,000 hour moment. Right here, this week is tshuva. You grab it now. And that's why the Rambam put tshuva as the one. The, the opportunity was too solid. It was too strong for you to pass it by and not grab the horse by the reins and take it right now. This moment of having outlier moments where we could separate ourselves from the pack, change our lives in a way that we've never been able to do before is an idea that's not just him. It's not just, it's not just Ravitzla Blazer. For example, I have here in the packet, the Me'iri, took the top of page three. The Me'iri says like this. We know the Mishnah in Pirkei Ava says that a person should do tshuva one day before their death. You never know when you're going to die. So it's every day is one day before your death. Every day is one day before your death. I once spoke to the, uh, the Amshin. You know the Amshin of a Rebbe? It's wild. The Amshin of a Rebbe, when you see him, you don't know what time you're going to get to see him. You've got to keep the phone on. The Gabbai could call you. 3.11 a.m. in the morning. I got the call. 4.10 a.m. Come in to see the Amshin of a Rebbe. The beard splits like this. It's fire when you walk in there. I walked in there and... The advice he was giving was as follows. The advice he gave in Yish, translate for you. He said in Yish, he goes, this time right now, is right after Yom Kippur. He said, one should have in mind, around Yom Kippur, right before, right before Yom Kippur, he said, one should have in mind, is spät, but noch yet sight. What does it mean? It's late, but there's still time. To live your life always. It's late, but there's still time. That urgency that keeps you moving, that keeps you pumping forward, but at the same time, that never to relinquish and think it's too late. <coughs> I'm always another second, but this is the last second. So that's what it means. Do tshuva the day before your death. So Rosh Hashanah, Roy Lolis Yoser. Rosh Hashanah is that golden opportunity. Bottom line, you give up from tshuva at this time, you're rejecting God. Why? Because God is giving you a gift in a package right in front of you. Here is tshuva. Take it, grab onto it. Grab onto it. Look at Rabbi Nachman of Breslov. Top of page, uh, top page four. Same idea. It says like this. From times there come to a person a moment where he wants to change. And this desire to connect to God. Wherever you are. Right there in that spot. Daika, specifically. You need to grab onto that Hirhor Tshuva. 
even though this place is not the right place for it, even though you seem like this, you're in the wrong spot for tshuva. You're not, for example, in a place of Torah and tefillah. You're not in a base medrash or a shul. You're all walking. Don't leave from there. Because if you move, it could be you'll lose the moment. When you feel the moment hitting you, when you feel that inspiration, it could be a sunset, could be all of a sudden a cool breeze hits you and you feel, wait a second, I'm doing something wrong, I want to change it right now. You see something inspiring. Says Rabbi Nachman Abreslov, don't you move. You stay right there and you figure out what your game plan is, how you're going to change your life. These are outlier moments. These are moments that you can't duplicate. And when they come, they're golden. They're golden. Rav Levi Yitzchak says the same thing. Back of the last page. Rav Levi Yitzchak the bottom. Page three. Too many words there. I'll read you a couple lines. Every world is receiving at every moment life from God. But you need to grab that moment, he says. Grab that world. Grab it by the horns. And want with all your heart to cling to God. It's the outlier moment. Okay. So the first answer to why the Rambam threw tshuva in as the tiebreaker. Rambam says tshuva is the tiebreaker because the opportunity is so amazing right now. To grab onto that possibility of tshuva in your life, you cannot leave it behind. Okay. That's the first answer that I want to share with you tonight. I want to give you another. And by the way, you know let's use the opposite. Um, the 1991, January 27, 1991, the Super Bowl. Yeah, the Giants were up against the Buffalo Bills. The Buffalo Bills were supposed to kill them. And the Giants were winning the whole game. At the end, they're down by, they're down, Buffalo Bills are down by two. And they bring in their star kicker that year. They're, they're all, a pro, their Pro Bowl kicker was Scott Norwood. They brought in Scott Norwood to the line. This is 47 yards. He could do this in his sleep. They brought up Scott Norwood. Adrenaline's pumping in his, drain, in, his, in his veins. What do they do? They call timeout. Why? They froze the moment for him. They took away his opportunity. They took away the moment when he was feeling it, when the adrenaline was kicking in. And that now is called, by the way, in football, icing the kicker. They iced him. They paused all his momentum and his energy, and then all the nerves kick in. You get psyched out. You freak out. And he went down to sit, and he lost it. He came back, he lost it. He lost it. And that's, the, that's, the, that's, that's using it the opposite. It's, it's taking away someone else's golden opportunity. Um, golden opportunity that, that minute when you have it. It's like when they sat me, Steve. Remember when they sat me against the martyrs that year? They sat me on the bench that year. All right. Second answer. Second answer. Again, the question is, if we're 50-50 and we need one mitzvah, ride the Rambam, say it's just tshuva. Let's go now to a different answer. This is from the Amic Bracha. The Amic Bracha, bottom of page four. Last paragraph. It seems to me simple. Underline again. Fabulous answer. What is it? Why did he say Tshuva is the tiebreaker? Because comes Rosh Hashanah, the numbers are locked in. The fact that you're going to do a mitzvah afterwards, great. But the voting booth is closed, man. The, the, you missed your time, right? The elections were now. They locked it up. You showed up late. The reason why the Rambam said you can't just do any mitzvah is because it's closed. What's the one thing that breaks open those doors? The one thing that breaks open that voting booth and says there's still time is tshuva. 
Tshuva is the one thing that reopens it up. So while you're closed out, you're locked out, you're left in the rain. Imagine that. You got to get somewhere on time. You got to get, you have your, uh, you have your, your meeting you got to get to for the job. You get there. You try to get there. You get stuck in traffic. There's an accident. The car, you can't find parking. Finally get out of parking. You get to the building. You get to the front of the building. You grab onto the door and you realize it's 801. It's closed. There's no way in. There's only one way in. And that's the back. And if you can get to the back, you have your way in. What's the back? The Rambam says the back is tshuva. It's the other way in. The Kutzka Rebbe says, if a Jew ever thinks there's no way, the Jew always has to find another way. A Jew always has to find another way. And that's this idea. This idea says the Emek Bracha, that you always got to find another way to break it. You know what that's like? I'll tell you like this. Wars. Wars for many years. The way you broke a tiebreaker in war, right? Everyone studied each other's army. How many men they had in the infantry, what kind of weapons they were using, how fatigued they were, how tired they were. It was basically a numbers game. You could simply put it on a paper and figure it out. Then in the 40s, two guys, two Jews, developed a concept called game theory. And it's changed economics forever. It's changed the way we deal with so many circumstances and scenario. War games for different military, different armies. It's called game theory. Game theory is when two things are tied, have a stalemate, you find another way to work the numbers or work the scenario to gain an edge. I'll give you an example. Two people fighting in a room. Hand-to-hand combat, the room is dark, lights are out. So everybody's going to use the perimeter of the room. Why? This way you could feel the wall. So you know where you're going. So one guy's going around the perimeter. The other guy's going around the perimeter. They're stalemate. They're going to keep going around, hopefully, until they bump and meet each other. But they can keep going like that for hours and hours. Game theory would say, since you know that he's thinking you're going to use the wall, and you're thinking he's going to use the wall, game theory says, change that. The odds are in your favor if you break that and walk right through the middle. Break the assumption and walk through the middle. And then you have the doors, and then the doors are open. I think shuva works in the same way. You can view it like game theory. You have this stalemate. The two sides of you are at war. They're at battle. There's only one way to break that once Rosh Hashanah comes. That game theory, that tiebreaker, is shuva. You know, there's something called stat, uh, status quo anxiety. You know what that is? That's whenever we want to change diet, anything. Let's use diet as a good example. The status quo anxiety. You want to change, you want to get healthy, you want to be strong, you want to get fit, you want to be in shape. Fine, great, those are great drives, those are wonderful drives. You got that drive, you're moving towards it. All of a sudden something hits you, and that's a fear. The fear is, uh, what if you never have that food again? Or the fear is, what if I can't do it? Or the fear is, what if I'm going to get sick doing it? Well, I'm going to make myself crazy doing it. I'll be And all of a sudden, you have yourself a status quo. That happens with any time we want to change. That's why we keep ending up in the same place every year. It's called status quo anxiety. Every time we want to change, some other counter fear, the, the pull to change comes because something bad happens in our life often. We need to change. We got to stop drinking. This is not working anymore. Fine. We commit to change, commit to change, commit to change until finally status quo anxiety kicks in. Chuba's telling us that you got to use game theory for this stuff. The only way you're going to break it is with game theory. You can't use the same methods over and over and over again. Something, some curveball throw in there to change the equation so it's no longer an even playing field. Break the playing field in some way. Uh, one psychologist said that he recommended, you know what he recommended? Take a picture of the guy drunk. <coughs> Say, if you go back to drinking again, this picture goes out all over the entire internet and your entire family and all your loved ones and everybody. I'm clicking the button. That's a game theory, game changer. Why? It's, a, it's, a, it's an unexpected emotional curveball you weren't expecting to deal with 
in your process, in your process of trying to get better. Okay, whether it works or not, it's irrelevant. It depends <laughs> on that person. But game theory would say the only way to change is to throw something into the equation that breaks the stalemate. That says the emic bracha is tshuva. Tshuva breaks the stalemate. Okay, let's take a third answer. Third answer. I remember when I forgot what Venus Williams did, um, but I remember what she tweeted. She 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 wronged somebody, but she wrote so sorry for what I did. And I remember thinking to myself like. What is that? What, what, that's, an, that's, how we, that's an apology. Or, you know, when you tell someone, I'm sorry, but. I'm sorry, but. When you tell somebody that, you know. Or, I'm sorry you feel that way. Listen, buddy, I'm sorry you feel that way. That's worse than not even saying anything to the person. That's worse than a sorry. It's disingenuous. It's not real. It, it, it's, it's not strong. It's not, a real, it's, not a, it's not a real apology. Where am I going with this? So I saw something in a sefer called Chuva Sashana. Sefer says, why is tshuva the breaker? Why can't I do any mitzvah? See, if I do any mitzvah, great. But that doesn't show that I've really changed. It just means I'm trying to tip the scale. What is tshuva? Tshuva is showing, no, no, no. I mean this. I want this. I want this badly. See, if I'm tied 50-50 and I pick any random mitzvah, okay, I'm not going to plow any, uh, again with a horse and a donkey at the same time. It's one of the prohibitions. I won't do it again. Okay. But when I agree to tshuva, what you're saying, what does tshuva mean? What you're saying is, I sincerely want this. I'm hungry for it. This is what I'm waking up. This is why I'm up. I want to change my life. That can break the tie. Why? Because everything else is just another number and it becomes just another numbers game. And just like you could add four things today, who says next week you can't subtract seven other things you're going to do in your life? But tshuva, even if you mess up later on, tshuva is you digging deep and saying, I want to do something about this. It's putting integrity behind your actions. That's what tshuva is. That's what tshuva is. I want to give you another answer. I was reading that uh, Howard Schultz, you know Howard Schultz, Howard Schultz uh, Starbucks. He said his tipping point when he started making millions, really, he turned the corner. He was taking a loss, taking a loss, and he turned the corner. At what point did he turn a corner? He turned the corner with a little red line. What was the red line? So he has the baristas making the, uh, I don't know which tea, the, the, what's the one you steam? The steamers. And they were pouring milk without regard. And he was losing millions because of all that milk being poured without regard when they were preparing the coffee. So he decided on all the thermoses, all the mugs, he's going to add a red line that tells the baristas, stop here. From that little red line, he made millions. And it's wild when you think about it. We always think that way to make millions or that way to success in our life needs something so crazy, so drastic, so out there. And sometimes it's these little things. You know, Steve Jobs... Steve Jobs said his only concept was, I just want one button for this phone. That's all I wanted. My only dream was that people should have a phone that has one button. So that little button on the bottom of the Apple phone was what turned this guy into one of the wealthiest men in history. It's simple, small changes that suddenly could change everything. How does that apply to us? So take a look at the Gemara in Brachas. It's the bottom of page uh, 7. <clears throat> Tanya 
Rabbi Yossi HaGlili Omer. Tzadikim Yetzer Tov Shoftam. For the righteous people, their good impulse causes them to make decisions. The bad people, they're Yetzer Ra. They're dark side. They're shadow side. Everybody's got a shadow side. Their dark side is what drives them to make decisions. The Benonim, the middle people, every decision comes from a little bit of light and a little bit of good. You know what? There's a truth to it. Think about the good things you've done in your life. If you dig deep within you, you'll see at the bottom of it, there was something that was self-serving. Listen, it made me feel good to take care of that person. That person knows I gave them charity, I feel better about it. I put my name in the building, I feel great about it. And if we, by the way, if we did not have that ego, a lot of good things would never get done. So it's not about whether we have ego. Someone always says, that guy's got a big ego. Everyone's got a big ego. The question is whether you use your ego to help the world or hurt the world. It's not whether you have an ego. Everybody's designed with an ego. Some are just better at hiding it than others. We all have an ego. The question is, are you making the world better with it or are you hurting the world with that ego? What do you do with that drive to satisfy yourself? What are you making of it in this world? That's what God's going to ask you. So the Benoni is driven by both sides. They're driven by darkness and they're driven by light. They're driven by a little bit of both. That's the Benoni. Zevizesh Shoftem. Says Rav Chaim Friedlander. That's why the Rambam chose tshuva. Why the Rambam choose tshuva? You take any action you're going to do. You know why you're going to do it? Because it feels good. If I decide I'm 50-50, I need one mitzvah. You know what mitzvah is going to be? I'm going to give tzedakah. It's not pure. A part of you is loving it. A part of you is loving that another person sees themselves as dependent on you. There's a sense of self that's being satisfied when you do that mitzvah. Why tshuva? Tshuva is the one shot you got right now to do something just because it's the right thing to do. What's tshuva? It's all emotional. Tshuva applies to every mitzvah. It's the sense that I want to do this for God. I want to, I want, God wants me to be a better person. That's why I want to do it. That's what, it takes every action you're going to do and says, you know what? This is my chance to do it purely for the right reason. That's what separates tshuva from every other mitzvah. So you ask, what's tshuva? He's talking about tshuva, tshuva. What am I supposed to do with tshuva? Tshuva is every mitzvah. That's the irony. Rambam's not telling you to get rid of the mitzvahs. Rambam's telling you tshuva is every mitzvah. Every mitzvah, it's the attitude you go into that mitzvah with. It's the attitude in saying, you know why I'm doing this? Because I want to be better. I want to be a better person in my life. I want to be someone who is just good. That's your opportunity with tshuva this week. It's your opportunity to make a decision that I'm done being fake. I'm done being something that I want to be a genuine good person. Forget how other people perceive me. I want to be good. That's the power of tshuva, says Rav Chaim Friedlander. It's why the Rambam is so insistent that you grab onto tshuva. It's because it's your shot to say, everything I was doing all along, yeah, a little good, a little bad, but you know what? I really wanted to do it. Deep down, that's what I wanted. Deep down, that's what I wanted. When I get to the essence of it, that's what I wanted. So when you look at these four distinctions, I think there's four totally different ways of looking at tshuva. Okay? You take the first idea. The first idea we saw at the beginning was the idea of Ravitzel Blazer. That what's tshuva, what's unique about tshuva is that it's this golden opportunity. It's this treasure sitting right in front of you. We're always looking for that thing that could help us change our lives suddenly. Ravitzla Blazer says, that's tshuva. It's right here. It's the decision this week to dig deep within yourself and lay your soul open for change. The second approach, the Amek Bracha says, no, you know what's amazing about tshuva? It's when the doors are locked, the stalemate, the two, the two bulls are going at each other. The only way to break that stalemate is tshuva. Tshuva is the key to reopen that voting booth and give yourself another shot. 
That's what tshuva is, the chance at another shot. What does that look like? It's a chance to just start. It's a chance to say, right now I have an opportunity to begin again. Nothing is ever too late. Nothing is ever too far. And then the third approach, we saw the idea of the tshuva sashana, where why tshuva? Because tshuva just shows that you really are sincere about the change, right? You could do a mitzvah here, a mitzvah there, but it doesn't show me that you're genuine about the change. I heard a great muscle. Someone gave a great muscle. Why during this week we're supposed to take on extra stringencies? Not that we're going to keep any of it after Yom Kippur, but specifically this week. And it's the most fake thing ever. What are you taking on things you're not going to keep afterwards? So someone compared it to uh, taking four baseball bats in the on-deck circle. Why are you taking four baseballs in the on-deck circle? So that when you drop the three, that one you're holding on to, it's a breeze. So during this week, you're laying it on thick as best as possible. You're pushing yourself to your limit so that when you come right after Yom Kippur, the things that are basic to your Judaism, whatever level you're at, whether that's eating kosher, whether that's tefillin, whether that's just being a good person, whatever you're at, that basic ritual becomes easy. It becomes light for you. And you can keep pushing up your threshold to a whole other level. And the fourth approach we saw was the uh, was this approach, the thin red line, Starbucks, that very pushed idea that it's simple. It, it, the, the most powerful things are just simplicity. You could do a huge mitzvah, but you know what? God wants the... I'll tell you like this. You know... Um, did I ever talk to, you about, talk to you guys about Mike Tyson? My feelings about Mike Tyson? Never said you want to know Mike Tyson? What? Sadiq? <laughs> okay, Avraham was given 10 tests, right? His 10th test was the, the binding of Isaac. Fine, massive test. Rabbeinu Yonah says no. That was his 9th test. His 10th test was how hard is he going to work to find a burial plot for his wife. Okay, whatever the test is, that's number 10. Question on Rabbeinu Yonah is, after you have the binding of Isaac, what kind of test is left? Come on, that was the biggest test in history. Leave it alone. And I was thinking about it. I remember one Shabbos morning, I was walking to Shul as a kid, and on the floor, I saw something I never thought I'd see. What did I see? I was shocked. I saw Mike Tyson laying on the floor. Unheard of. What happened? Buster Douglas, a no-namer, took out Mike Tyson. What happened? How did it go wrong? There's a lot of pilpil. What exactly went wrong right before it? I think the shot is simple. Once you get to the top, what happens when you get up there? Do you stay strong or you let it all go once you're at the top? That's what we say in Tehillim. Mi yale bahar Hashem, who climbs up the mountain of God? Umi yakumbim kom kocho, and who could stay up there? It's one thing to get up there, but the real power, the real energy is staying up there. And I think that's what happened with Iron Mike. He got up there and then gave it all up. And I think in the same way, that's what tshuva is. See, you could do another mitzvah here, there, it's great. But you know what tshuva is? Tshuva says, I'm serious about this. I'm here to stay. These changes I'm making in my life, I'm not messing around anymore. I'm not playing games. I am serious about letting go. I'm serious about letting go of my past demons and moving forward in my life. That's what tshuva is. So Mamish, we have such a, a, a great opportunity this week. Really a great opportunity. And one thing, when I met with um, Rav Moyal, when he was here last, so uh, I, I keep my group of Mekubalim very small. I, I, I'm very wary of a lot of them. I keep my group very small. Rav Moyal's in my inner Mekubal, my favorite Mekubal group. And he said such a great thing. I don't know if he meant it for me privately or whatever, but I think the concept is fabulous. He says, you know, we daven every day, great. He says, write your own prayer. Write your own prayer. Your own words, the way you speak. Your own prayer. Write it out. And every day, put yourself 
alone in a room, however length of time you have. You have one minute, you got one minute. If you got three minutes, you got three minutes. And say your personal prayer. And I think that's a powerful exercise in this week, right now. Because you realize once you sit down, what I realized, I, I started to write it. I'm like, where do I, what should I write? What's my personal prayer? And you guys, wait a second. I'm, I'm a rabbi. I'm davening three times a day. And I don't know what it is I need to daven for. And that's when you force yourself to open up in a way you, it's scary. You're going to open yourself up in a way you haven't in a long time. When you're forced to ask yourself, what are the things I want to daven for in life? And then you're going to look at it and it's going to be scary because you look at it and say, wait a second, it's all about me. Am I a narcissist? And you keep re-looking at it over and over and you rip it up and you start again. You rip it up. That I think is an element of tshuva. It's saying enough games. Now I'm ready to be real. Now I'm ready to be serious about all this business. I'm going to open myself up and I'm not afraid anymore to open whatever I may find in there. I may not like what I find, but at least it's me. And once I know it's me, I can begin to change. If you never know what you are, you can never change anything because you've never audited yourself. If you don't audit yourself, you don't know what it is you need to fix. And all of our problems come from that lack of clarity of understanding who we are and what it is. God willing, may we have the clarity in this tshuva season, in this week, mamish to grab hold of this outlier moment and really take us to a totally different place. Let's God willing have the change we want, the change forever. Let's go.